This episode of the Editor's Roundtable is brought to you by Brand South Africa. For a fresh perspective on South Africa's politics, economy, culture, people, and more, sign up for South Africa Now, a bi-monthly e-newsletter bringing you the most interesting stories about the Rainbow Nation. Register today at foreignpolicy.com slash south-africa-now. That Moonlight One is a triumph over Trump's America, and we shouldn't say otherwise. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Roscoff, CEO and editor, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in New York today, joined by a new guest who I'm pleased to welcome to the table, Joanna Rothkoff, who is features editor at Jezebel and is also co-host of the weekly podcast, Big Time Dicks. I recommend the podcast not just because I'm her dad. And joining us from Washington is FP columnist Rosa Brooks, Senior Future of War Fellow at New America, professor at Georgetown University, and author of How Everything Became War and the Military Became Everything. Also, Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she focuses on military history, and Susan Hennessy, who is a fellow in National Security and Governance Studies at Brookings. She is also managing editor of the excellent Lawfare blog. ER nerds, do you have any ideas or comments or suggestions or just what I'm really getting a lot of recently, pathetic sob story about why you absolutely need an ER mug? You can email those to us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. They're really kind of heartbreaking, but I like the ones that are like, hi, I'm in the Solomon Islands, and there's nothing to do here but listen to the ER, please send a mug. Um, my, my island is sinking. <laughs> Only your mug can save Exactly. Me. This is all I've got. I'm in a, Right. I'm in a tiny boat bailing away. Please send a mug before I drown. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio high above Washington's DuPont Circle, and from another not-so-tiny studio high above Brooklyn, we had the following conversation. Keeping this timely, you know, keeping this kind of tied to, you know, popular culture, which I know everybody loves, including Corey, who thinks popular culture is the latest Herman Melville novel. Um, it is! It is! It is, yeah. No, those are great. They're really kind of cutting edge. And that Charles Dickens, the things he's got serialized, <laughs> fabulous. Um, but let's let's start in another vein with the Oscars. It was a surprising turn of events there at a highly politicized ceremony. We need a hot take on the Oscars. Let me turn to you, Joanna, to kick it off. Well, <laughs> the one, the first thing I was taught in journalism was not to give hot takes. So I'm not going to give a hot take. Okay, give us a lukewarm (laughs) take on the Oscars. What is a hot take? I I don't even know what a hot take is. Is that something from Moby Dick? Funny you should mention the novel Moby Dick. I would like I'm to not go up to that. I didn't even get past you know. chapter 29, The Law of Fast Fish and Loose Fish. <laughs> I, Joanna, I know. this is your cue to break Joanna, in. Joanna, there was an entire yeah. chapter in Moby Dick, if I recall correctly, right. on the, the way, subject you heard the ellipsis, of dicks. The ellipsis at the end of what Corey was saying. <laughs> yes, like, that's where to jump in before she actually has to prove what oh, she okay. knows or doesn't I know. I get the rhythm. Yeah. Do this for our listeners, Joanna. Do this for our listeners. <laughs> 
Joanna, do you have any stories you'd uh, like to share about David as a as a parent before we get into foreign policy? Because I think that's what our listeners are probably most interested in learning <laughs> oh, about. Fuck. This is a safe space. This is a Still safe space. No, it's very Jesus supportive. Christ. And our listeners are very supportive, too, of everybody except David. They, they love all of us except David. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fire away, Joanna. I don't, I don't really have any parenting stories off the top of my head, although I'm what? sure they will come to mind. <laughs> I mean, I would, need, I would need a little prompting. All right, all right, all right. You want to talk with, about the Oscars. With, with David as a parenting story, so I need to be <laughs> the David. narrowed down. The David? Really? I didn't do Well, yeah. David, you must, have done, <laughs> yeah. you must have done something right, because jo- Joanna is, is very dexterously avoiding our question, which suggests that you have, you have taught her <laughs> or well. Or that she, she's planning to publish a memoir. Or she's just saving it. Doesn't right. She doesn't want to give for free to the ER nerds. If I'm given some <laughs> guidance, I can give a story. I just can't pull one out of my... Yeah, yeah, go on. Don't use the guidelines. I think there was a chapter in Ruby Dick about that. <laughs> yeah, right. I don't know what these style guidelines are. The style, there are no style guidelines. Joanna, the Academy Awards ended in a complete catastrophe. <laughs> if we don't mention it here, people will think this was taped decades ago. I know. Okay. Oscars, I couldn't stop screaming. I felt like I was on drugs. I couldn't go to sleep. I feel so tired. It's the most exciting thing that's ever happened the, in my life. You mean the giving the wrong award? <laughs> There's a no, but story having it go so. to moonlight instead of. Were you allowed Lala to watch Lala television Lala. as a child? Okay, so I have to admit, I did not watch the Oscars, and so my knowledge is like something happened. There was like a mistake. But okay, I let me explain what know. happened. Donald Trump was elected president. It was just the awful. same accounting oh, that was firm the first mistake. brought, oh, brought the first you. Mistake. Subprime mortgage valuations. <laughs> Take it from there, Joanna. Okay. I hate to explain award ceremonies in terms of politics because everybody on Twitter does it and it's not accurate and I don't find it to be a good comparison. But essentially, in broad terms, there was a movie starring white people that appealed to large, broadest common denominator. Everyone thought it would sweep the Oscars. It almost did. And then the underdog, real, good, beautiful movie won the day. Focused on people of color with an LGBT main character. It was Wait, all but about... It, it really it, won, or they were, it was the wrong one? Okay, here's what happened. Okay, more specifically <laughs> what happened. Warren Beatty went up to read the envelope. He looked at the envelope, seemed confused, showed it to Faye Dunaway... Faye Dunaway said, stop being such a joker. La La Land won. What turned out to have happened was that he was handed the envelope for Best Actress, and it said Emma Stone in La La Land. He was confused. Faye Dunaway didn't get that he was confused, so the wrong winner was announced. Then Jordan Horowitz. This is why I focus on culture in the 19th century. Let me just say that. Okay, well, keep it, let, we'll keep finishing. Finish the story, Joanna, and then we'll come back to the 19th century where we're more comfortable. Okay. La La Land producers gave all these nice speeches. They were all very happy. Damien Chazelle stood in the background looking very smug. And then Jordan Horowitz, who's a producer of La La Land, learned the news and held up. He said, this is a mistake. Moonlight won and held up the envelope to the camera. It was very dramatic. That's the story. And people freaked out. Everyone freaked out. The world freaked out. Yeah. Trump Beat Hillary Clinton once again. 
what? No, I don't know. I'm well, I don't see where that political if, if threat is. If there's a comparison, <laughs> it would be the opposite. But. Yeah, well, okay. And the people of La La Land shuffled off the stage embarrassedly? Yeah, they, they stood to the side. And the moonlighting people came on? Barry Jenkins gave a little, director Barry Jenkins gave a short speech. Everyone was stunned. And then it, then it ended. Okay. This is just more evidence that you cannot trust anything anymore. You cannot trust the fake news. Fake Oscar. Fake news, fake envelopes, <laughs> fake Oscar fake winners. Oscar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm. And this is Don't believe a, an example anything. of life in Trump's America, Susan Howe. Um, in that the process and procedures have broken down to the point that the simplest task is no longer functioning. Confusion well to our enemies. Played, thank you. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. So we've blamed this on Trump. I'm very comfortable with that. Rosa? I, I, was, we were, I thought we were blaming it on Russia and also big accounting firms and also Trump. I think okay. that's fair. Yeah. And also our parents. It's probably their fault. Surely the FBI should have issued a letter or a statement at some point during the evening's proceedings suggesting that there's the possibility that there was something funny going on and they're not sure whether it connects at all to Best Picture. I suspect voter I, fraud. I would say that the ineptitude of PricewaterhouseCooper is very Trumpian. However... That Moonlight One is a triumph over Trump's America, and we shouldn't say otherwise. So, Joanna Rothkoff, you have just stolen from me the one thing, the one joy of this Oscar season, which was that I was hoping that we would only just have smug political speeches from out-of-touch Hollywood actors and actresses, and that we were not going to have major political references. Right. Like when the first lady gave an Academy Award. But now you have stolen that from me. Even the Oscars are political. There is no longer any space in American sport, culture or life where we don't have to deal with politics. There is, however, a space where we don't have to deal with Oscars. And that is called My House, where we did not watch them. We also did not watch any of the movies that received Oscars. So we have a happy media free zone. I just have to say it. It was a, such a luxury for us to not have to deal with politics before, and it was not the case for everybody. I'm just going to say it. Some people lived with it every single day. Of not dealing with politics. No, of having to deal with po- politics and social this issues is, every single This is every like, day uh, you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. Good, yes. It's exactly like it's that. Exactly it's like exactly that. like that. Well, I have to say, from my perspective, I got up, the, I missed it. I was on an airplane. I got up this morning. I read the paper. I saw some texts from Joanna last night saying that the world had blown up and that this was an amazing thing. And so I read about it and I thought, wow, this is amazing. And then I went to a couple meetings this morning and nobody was talking about Trump. They were all talking about the Oscars. And I was like, oh, my God, this is the first day since Donald Trump has been president that I didn't walk into meetings with people talking about Trump. It was fantastic. It's a blessing. Yes. Now, Susan, you've been apoplectic for 40 days now. Did you feel any oh, sense of Oh, I've been apoplectic much morning? longer than that, David. <laughs> oh, I see. I see. Well, I didn't really, I was really aware of your prior apoplexy. But did you feel some relief this morning or did you go right after? I mean, I saw some very hot tweets from you on 
the Logan Act? You know, mm-hmm, did you mm-hmm. continue on as though none of this had ever happened? Not only do I appear on the ER podcast, but I listen to the ER podcast. I am an ER nerd. Yeah. And like many people who are listening right now who had no idea that this occurred until like at some point this afternoon and maybe like we're sort of like half laughing in conversations with the colleagues to pretend as though they knew what they were talking about. Um, this is really the first time understanding about it. And so I, I am glad that we're performing this service to our listeners <laughs> who can at least now with a slightly more confidence. They're, they're hopeless. <laughs> our listeners are absolutely through hopeless. that blind date tonight. Our awesome listeners are up to the moment exactly. on the Logan app, which is where we want them. I mean, but listen, Susan is like overstated because none of our listeners have a blind date tonight. They have no dates. <laughs> we should very, do a dating it, service and match people good up. Good God, no. Yeah, they That's didn't even want idea. a YouTube channel. Yeah. I don't think they and, want a dating service. An AR service. nerd they don't want dating date. service? Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah. That's a good Connects. idea. Yeah, <laughs> Guys. You Did know, you I laugh think, at I that Melville might... joke? Me too. <laughs> okay, so like we're gonna now. I'm gonna do the subtle, smooth transition more into the sort of day to day stuff that our nerds come to have come to have loved. Both Joanna and Susan have other podcasts that they do. That's and so, so wrong. T- I'm so yeah, it is wrong. They're podcast unfaithful. But, yeah, that's also true. It's very Technically, sad. I think we both but had those before. This podcast is you my mistress. Yeah. Uh, there wow. is no podcast, but this podcast, wow. there's sort of our... Wow, there is no world but our world. But that's, that's the motto of the blob uh, from which we all come. <laughs> but in any event, Joanna, you have a podcast with the poetic name Big Time Dicks. What is which is that a literary podcast? reference. What is that um, podcast about? And then, Susan, I'm going to ask you what your most recent podcast was about, and then we'll go into our usual ranting. Big Time Dicks is based off of a Jezebel column called Big Time Small Time Dicks that features local politicians behaving badly. And Big Time Dicks looks at the laws and lawmakers fucking up your life, and it's about policy, but cool. <laughs> you mean like us? Uh it's kind yeah. of a knockoff of our podcast. No. Because we are, it's not. Our goal is to make policy it's... uncool again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, we're, and you're doing a we're great doing job, right? Make policy nerdy. <laughs> yeah, we are. We are own our own inner nerd. <laughs> what was your last podcast about? Um, our last podcast was about the ICE raids and Trump's new immigration orders, the DHS's new orders. I have to say, I was in a school in California this weekend, I was watching the program that's being conducted for uh, students in the in these schools, actually involving my fiance. And she she goes, she's a singer, and she goes into the schools, and they use the arts to help kids adjust. And I have to tell you something. This was school in California. The kids come to school now, and some of them pray before class because they want to ask that their parents are there when they get home. Some of those kids are being trained, third graders, on how to assume adult responsibilities in case when they get home their parents aren't there. Uh, Legal aid comes into parent-teacher meetings. 
to talk to families about how to cope with the disruptions associated with this. People have blacked over their windows. Little children are told never to answer the door. People are texting each other messages that say things like, the trees grow high on Main Street, messages which are meant to convey whether or not anybody has seen anybody from ICE in the neighborhood. You know, we talk a lot about the deportations that are part of the Trump program. But we don't talk about the psychological toll that this takes on literally millions of innocent people in the United States, people born here, whose families are living in a, in a state of absolute terror. Okay, that's a conversation killer. But I just, I, I mean, I felt it was like, it was very interesting to be sort of out there and seeing the sort of street level consequences of some of these horrific DC policies. Uh, and just to, just to connect it back to policy, look, I, I do think I, I think one of the important sort of policy points on it is that um, certainty is actually really important in the uh, both what uh, citizens and non-citizens sort of expect about their relationship with government. And so we're seeing the consequences of, of introducing lots of uncertainty into the system. Um, and then the sort of the other piece of what we're seeing, which is quite a bit of ugliness regarding sort of conduct of CBP or ICE or sort of these other uh, reports that are coming out. Um, and that's that we don't want... Uh, sort of lots and lots of discretion running all the way down to like the the line officer level. Um, uh, there's a reason why we have these sort of policies um, and that's because that's the way abuse actually occurs whenever an individual person who doesn't have adequate training or doesn't understand all the equities is making really consequential decisions every day. Although one thing I will say, I, I'll say one brief thing, quasi sort of kind of in defense of Trump, not exactly, but um, wow. The Trump supporters have been quick to point out that deportations reached record levels under under President Obama. Uh, and and that is true. And, and I think that Susan's point, there's absolutely no question about it that, that recent Trump administration comments and actions have introduced uh, uncertainty, terror, and we are seeing we are seeing people who are having just horrifically bad things happen to them and their families. Um, but but it is worth noting, I think I think two things. One, that this has been going on, albeit more quietly, for a very very long time. Um, one of my very first grown up jobs uh, right out of law school was working for Human Rights Watch on uh, researching unaccompanied minors in immigration detention. And that was that was 20 years ago, and there were absolutely horrific stories uh, of of abuse and mistreatment even then. And, and so, so, so I think I think it is important not to kind of kid ourselves that everything here is new. That there are also some substantial continuities. And the second point, which which is related to that, is that the former INS, uh, now ICE and Border Patrol have always been kind of horror shows in terms of extremely poor training down to the line level people, uh, incredible arbitrariness and abuses really at every level. So that that's not new. It's, it's ongoing. I think what is frightening is when you have an agency that already violates half of its own procedures and has done so for 20 plus years, causing, you know, great pain to lots of people. Uh, and great uncertainty and confusion when you when you then announce that you're going to a dramatically expand that by lowering your hiring standards still further and b when the message from on high is yeah feel free to be arbitrary as opposed to we need to safeguard people's rights and so forth that that is absolutely a recipe for you know doubling or quadrupling the number of abuses and horror stories that we see 
Well, actually, they're also planning on doubling the number of people, doubling the number of in- detention cells. Yeah. When you add on that many people, they're not going to be – they're going to be even less well-trained. No, and they've made it clear that they're going to – they're going to loosen up the hiring standards in order to uh, bulk up quickly, which is going to be a disaster. And in terms of unintended consequences – and, Corey, perhaps you have a perspective on this – but in terms of unintended consequences, we've also seen in terms of the immigration policies, we've seen the visa policies, the Muslim ban – and I just saw a number that showed that tourism to the United States was off by 10 percent so far this year. In other words, people are like, I'm not I'm not going through. I'm not going through. That's a three hundred and sixty billion dollar Trump. Trump. Well, they would. They would. The, whoever <laughs> makes that stuff up would call it that. But that's 10 percent of it, like a giant industry. I mean, these. There is there is Trump himself, the epicenter of horribleness. And then surrounding Trump, there's Trump's inner circle who make the horribleness worse. The, the Bannons and that little worm, Stephen Miller and some of these other turds. And then there is the Republican establishment in Washington as a kind of next level of circle where you've got, you know, McConnell and Ryan and, you know, idiots like Devin Nunez, the head of the House intelligence apparatus that's supposed to be overlooking this, who who just, you know, parroting Trump stuff and exacerbating it, make it hard to dig down into whatever the facts are. And then outside beyond all of this, you have the unintended consequences of their actions. And the unintended consequences of their action, whether it's terrorizing millions of people or killing immigration of the United States, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, are also quite large. A eh, Corey? Yes, that is true. Um, I do think that the administration is going to be reined in not by the Congress but by American businesses, American universities, American tour companies that see the effects of people not wanting to risk coming to the United States because of the kinds of uncertainties these policies are creating. That said, I do feel the need to say that they're right to enforce the law. We should have an argument about what the law should be, and we should absolutely better train the people who are carrying out the law. But the country actually also does have a right to control the border, to control immigration, and to police it when people are in violation of their immigration status. I want our country to do it in a generous, compassionate, decent way, but we are also right to do it. But I think it is, this is yet another example of sort of uh, mapping the evolution from sort of George W. Bush compassionate conservatism to the policies of Donald Trump. He sort of, he's, he really has, even though some of sort of the basic policies are are similar, I think it demonstrates how differently it reads whenever you take away kind of that that just basic commitment to um, wanting to do things in a a sort of humane, reasonable way. The other thing is there's a huge resource issue here. Um, You know, you actually can't deport everybody. It's, it's not possible. And so, you know, while the Obama administration certainly increased deportations, um, they had very clear priorities about who was sort of, um, who was high priority for deportation and who was low priority for deportation. By just kind of going all out and, and grabbing anybody you can, um, each, you know, you should sort of consider each person who's deported is somebody else who's not deported. And and I think there really is questions, you know, beyond just sort of the the 
basic sort of justice and, and sort of humanitarian elements of it um, about whether or not this is sensible security policy as well. Because um, are we focusing on the right people here? Absolutely. We are failing to focus on the right people. The majority of illegal immigrants are people who overstay legitimate visas. And the majority by nationality of people who do that are Canadians. Oh, those Canadians. Oh, that I'm totally right. in Blame Canada. We need to round them all up. We are putting a wall on the wrong border, wrong border. Yeah. The wrong border. Yeah. This is, this is well, very Yeah, do it. No, Joanna, what, what, you were going to say something here? Well, I, I just want to contextualize a little bit. Before you said unintended consequences of discouraging immigration, Jeff Sessions doesn't want people to immigrate here. That's not an unintended consequence. He said in 2015 that legal immigration is the primary source of low-wage immigration into the United States. He wants to stop people from coming here. This isn't like an accident. And also, our current immigration laws are designed to let more educated Europeans in. And it was a mistake that brown people were allowed in from the 1965 Immigration Act. And I just think that there's a whole context to this that, in addition to upholding the laws and vetting our immigrants, is kind of being unsaid. Right. So there's obviously I think there's a, there's a distinction, though, between the unintended consequences related to immigration versus that tourism. I think even Jeff Sessions um, loves the notion of people coming into the United States to spend their money and then leave those sorts of economic consequences, which which flow from sort of discriminatory policies and all this other stuff. Uh, that might be the area in which Trump starts to uh, hear from his own base. And as somebody who lives in Silicon Valley and teaches at a university, we we need immigrant talent and the notion that that people aren't going to feel welcome here, aren't going to choose to spend their talents here is really bad for the country. And now we'll take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. If you want to learn about the startups that are changing the trajectory of South Africa and the continent, South Africa's contributions to exploring outer space, South African agricultural innovation that serves as a global model, the many companies across different sectors investing in South Africa and its people, there is a single platform for this and much more. Top policymakers, business executives, nonprofit leaders, academics, and journalists have already subscribed to South Africa Now, a bi-monthly e-newsletter focused on what you need to know about the Rainbow Nation. Go to foreignpolicy.com slash south-africa-now to register today. All right, well, let me, let me sort of pick up on this. I think we can stipulate that a lot of what's going on with this current administration intentionally is bad, and there are also some pretty nasty unintended consequences. Uh, and we see that wherever they sort of act impulsively, in an area which usually doesn't involve a lot of impulsive action, but seems to on the part of this administration, is budgeting. So normally the way this kind of works is and a White House goes out, goes to the various agencies, gets their input, and then incorporates that into a budget. Uh, this administration apparently didn't really do that in formulating its budget, partially because it hasn't actually appointed people to the vast, vast majority of jobs that are open for political leadership in those agencies. And instead, a small group of people, including our good old favorites, Bannon and Miller, uh, got together to shape a budget that has some really, really striking elements to it. 
like proposed cuts to the Department of State of like 30 percent, gutting women's programs, gutting arts programs. And and, you know, this Congress, you know, normally you don't even take this first budget seriously. But these are just the kind of things this Congress kind of likes and, and, and might buy into. And so we might actually move from a period where a lot of the scary stuff about Trump was talk that they had a hard time following through with in action to a period where it's actually some policy initiatives that take root and gut the budget of agencies of the United States that, that you know, may be important to our standing in the world or to the lives of our people. David, as soon as you said the word budget, Corey's eyes began to sparkle (laughs) with nerd glowing. It's It's beautiful, you guys. The exact opposite thing happened to my eyes. (laughs) Joanna slumped forward. Deep deep in my heart, I am an insurance actuary. (laughs) She has a chapter on budgets in Moby Dick, too. (laughs) I thought it was just because you're a defense nerd, and all the talk is let's increase defense spending. Uh, So, yes, I do believe the Defense Department is salivating at the prospect of as much as $54 billion in supplemental spending this year. Two things about the budget, David, and it serves you right for bringing the subject up. First, the administration has only been in office for three weeks. That they do not have a proposed federal budget for the year is actually not a standard any other administration would have met either. So we don't know yet what the budget is going to be like. It'll be at least another month before there's a budget proposal. Second thing is that, you know, the president doesn't actually create the budget, the Congress creates the budget. So the president proposes whatever he wants, but it's difficult for me to see the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, for example, agreeing to authorize a budget that cuts State Department spending by 30 percent. It's even hard for me to see most of the conservatives on the um, Senate Armed Services Committee agreeing to that. So, So Congress gets a not just gets a big say in this, they get the definitive say in this. And the third is that the supplemental, again, we haven't even seen the supplemental yet. What we are hearing are scared reports by people that there are going to be cuts. And they're probably right to be scared. If I were a betting man, the biggest, most interesting fight in Washington this year is actually going to be Republican on Republican violence over the budget between the defense hawks and the budget hawks. That well, hot first of all, I, we love action. I, I have to say, I love Republican on Republican violence. Secondly, <laughs> um, secondly, in terms of how all this works, you may think I'm getting ahead of myself, but actually, the White House during its Monday morning uh, or Monday afternoon press conference led with their OMB director talking about their budget proposals, and that's why I picked it up. But here's the thing. There may be some dispute over the State Department, but climate programs, EPA, women's issues, those things are going to get savaged. Arts programs going to get savaged 
in this budget. Does anybody disagree with that? So, yeah. So I think this is the area in which, and I, and I hate saying this, and I want to like slap anybody who says it, but like elections have consequences. And the Republicans won this one. And so if you're a Democrat, as you know, many of us are, you're horrified, right? But that's that. I think that sort of falls into like, well, that's what happens. What's, what would have happened if Ted Cruz had won? What would have happened if Jeb Bush had won, right? So sort of varying degrees. Um, the, the strange thing, and so, you know, yes, it's important to be focused and, and yes, I think it's outrageous and these programs are really important and all this other stuff, but but sort of just on the pure like policy and what's different about Trump element. Um, you know, the other piece that's just really strange about this administration is they appear to use like trial balloons in just an incredibly strange way, which is that they it's, they don't think about policy and then they, they arrive at a conclusion and then maybe they sort of float the idea to see pushback. It's like they just kind of offer a first thought and then everybody responds. Trying to see what the market will bear. Exactly. It's just, it's such a strange way to make policy. It's a horrible way to make policy because it incurs all of the damage of having chosen that policy course. And it alarms friends and and prepares adversaries. But I I think Susan's exactly right that this administration wants everyone in a permanent lather about what might happen rather than what is happening. Again, we get into this core issue of what they intend and what they don't intend. Joanna, there's a headline at Jezebel saying, Donald Trump doesn't know who could have guessed healthcare is so complicated. It seems like there's some areas in this regard that they don't seem to know what they're doing. Uh, certainly. That's so hard <laughs> I to mean, believe. I mean, I think that's specific. Yeah. I mean, the I harder question is what headline. do they know about? Right. I feel like that specifically was Donald Trump not knowing about something and then learning about it and then speaking. You mean like healthcare, which he's been talking about for the past year? Yeah. Talking about is a overstatement. I think it's generous, but... Well, he's been saying he's going to cut it. Right. But beyond that, not much. Well, yeah, you're, absol- you're, you're, you're absolutely right about that. But it does seem... You know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if I completely buy this this position. You know, well, you get elections, they've got consequences and so forth. That doesn't mean that we, we should be outra- shouldn't be outraged. And secondly, George W. Bush did a lot of stuff for the environment. He was a Republican. He's not going to evis- – he didn't eviscerate EPA in the same way that Trump wants to. There's many flavors of Republican too. And, and it also seems quite likely that some of the stuff that Trump would do – uh, won't go down well, as Corey said, with other Republicans who are currently there. Uh, it just seems like the things that are most likely to die, EPA, aid programs that don't have to do with security, uh, arts programs, that that's pretty, I don't know, that's pretty egregious to me just to start with. Yeah, so like I'm pro-outrage like in, in all kinds of different contexts. I'm never anti-outrage. Um, it, I think it's more about sort of being disciplined in terms of how we talk about this administration and really distinguishing the forms of outrage that are like politics as usual outrage versus the forms of outrage that are threats to democracy, really fundamental pre-political commitment issues. And so it's, it's one I think that is, that is really an incredible challenge here and one I haven't quite figured out how to address, I don't know that anyone has, is how to have both of those conversations simultaneously in a way that makes clear, okay, now we're Republicans and Democrats fighting about the policy stuff we always fight about. And when like we are really talking about something different because I, I worry that it looks like crying yeah. wolf and potentially undercuts those really, really serious concerns. I think that's really smart. 
I also, you know, uh, another foreign policy uh, alumni, Josh Rogan, had a had a good tweet earlier today in which he he quoted Jim Mattis saying, "If you don't fund the State Department fully, then I need to buy more ammunition," and commented uh, snarkily that Trump took that literally. Um, he seems to be <laughs> deciding that that's the approach to take: cut the State Department, buy more ammunition. But it'll be interesting to see how this shakes out in terms of the the power dynamics within the administration, because obviously uh, people like Jim Mattis, now Secretary of Defense, have been very strong voices for funding the civilian apparatus, civilian foreign policy apparatus of the U.S. government, and for making the case that we we, we cannot succeed in achieving our military goals if we do not have a capable and well-funded and empowered uh, civilian side. So obviously, the suggestion of what is to come, recognizing that Corey's right, of course, this could turn out to be a trial balloon that, that is popped. But the suggestion of what is to come, I think, is, is likely to generate a good deal of internal resistance uh, among some key folks, including H.R. McMaster, the new national security advisor, and Jim Mattis. So, so, so seeing how that plays out and whether those voices internally get any traction remains to be seen. Well, one thing that's funny is you the person you didn't mention was Rex Tillerson. Right. I Rex feel like Tillerson. Need, I don't know who Rex Tillerson is. We need to know where in the world is Rex Tillerson. He's, I'm, I'm waiting for Show. his yeah, Where in the world I thought, is Rex Tillerson? I saw Tillerson. his face on the back of a milk carton. <laughs> well, yeah, well, that's that's true. I mean, you know, Trump had dinner. Trump had yeah. dinner at his own hotel with Rex Tillerson two tables away. Trump's having dinner with Nigel Farage, and he's not even acknowledging Rex Tillerson. In, in Rex any Tillerson way. is very wise to, not to want to have dinner with Nigel Farage. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's you think, you think maybe Joanna, Tillerson you... requested. He said, could you seat me at a different table? <laughs> Go on. I just want to make the point. I know this is not a cool foreign policy circle attitude to have, but I think it's the cool Jezebel attitude to have, so I'm going to make it. I'm in favor of being outraged 100% of the time. Like, I do think it's a privileged position to say, is this business as usual? Is this just Republicans being Republicans? Because... Let's say it's about an abortion law in a state that has been passed that's the Republican platform, but it's new. Like, you've had that baby. It doesn't matter if this is politics as usual or if, like, a pundit is saying, I'm not going to be outraged about this. The baby is alive. Like, these are real consequences for people. For the EPA being slashed, I talked to a scientist before the election, and she was optimistic. She was like, we've had Republican presidents before. We've had people who aren't as dedicated to climate to fighting climate change as Obama was. It's going to be fine. We, The science community is in a really good place. And then after the election, she's been devastated. She's been responding to my emails in very scary ways. She doesn't sound like the same person. Like, I would argue this is not business as usual. It's not just Republicans being Republicans. Well, so I, I don't yeah, think... I, well, I- I don't think we have to say yeah, that it's on. not consequential. There obviously is lots of stuff that is consequential. I, I just think we do have to um, have to be really, really honest about sort of about saying that the difference between whether or not there are um, you know EPA regulations which will have you know massive consequences for climate change are incredibly important. Whether or not that we should be treating that question the same as. Uh, will we have another election? Does the president of the United States ref, uh, represent United States, the, United, the interest of the United States or the interest of a hostile foreign adversary? I just it's uh, if everything is important, if everything is a high priority, then nothing is a high priority. And so I worry that that plays into Trump's uh, sort of tact here in, in the sense of presenting liberals as, as basically constantly in a lather over everything and, and potentially alienates 
allies, you know, sort of conservative allies that actually might be helpful in encountering some of the really, really destructive policies. That may be so. That, look, I think that may be so. But on the other hand, if you're a 15-year-old who's pregnant, guess what? You don't care about Russia and you don't care about this other stuff. You care about whether you have the ability to take care of it. And if you're downstream from a place where they're dumping coal dust into the water that you're supposed to drink, you care more about that than you do about the other issues. And I think it's important to have the perspective, the outside the beltway perspective, um, that sometimes the issue that you care least about, somebody else cares most about, and 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 for darn good reason. We've only got a couple minutes left in this particular episode. I would like to go to the red meat round where I will just throw out a term and everybody, you know, give it a 15-second response and then we'll move on to the next term. But there's so many things that happen here in the course of this thing that I think it's it's it you know it helps our viewers blow off steam while they're in the last phases of their uh, very slow walk on the treadmill or whatever it is that they're doing while listening to this. So let me just start uh, with well with this one, Joanna. You just gave us a outside the Beltway perspective. Do you give a crap about the White House Correspondents' Dinner? <laughs> I do and I don't. <laughs> I don't know. It seems. You, like it's fun for the people who get to go. Do you care where it. the president goes or doesn't go? Or I mean, I think it's very typical Trump for him to say, "Oh, people are pulling out. I'm not. I'm not going first. I said I wasn't going first. But I mean, I, I wish he would get along with reporters. I yeah, think the that's White my House I wish he, I dinner. wish he wouldn't hate the yeah. First Amendment. Yeah, yeah. I think what, the White what? House Correspondents' Dinner is one of the reason. People really dislike Washington. It gives Washington a sort of Hunger Games capital kind of feel. Um, I would love to see. I saw somebody suggest on Twitter a really beautiful idea, a White House Correspondents' Dinner that's focused on celebrating the First Amendment, not celebrating the proximity of people in power to the journalists covering them. And the Hollywood celebrities. Yes. Uh, no, I think the White House Correspondents' Dinner is disgusting in almost every way. I recognize that it raises money for some good causes, but in every other way, the 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 symbolism and the you know we're all pals here is is fairly gross. Um, the you know Absolutely. the old journalists are supposed to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, and I didn't see a lot of that at the last few White House Correspondents' Dinners. So I will take the defense. I mean, look, I'm I'm, I'm hardly like a, you know, the White House Correspondents' Dinner uh, booster, um, and, and I do think sort of the end of the era of access journalism will have um, a lot of positive outcomes. Um, that said, you know, I, I do think it represents something, even if the form is a little bit perverse, and that's the notion of, of grace in discourse, and the notion that in the United States of America, we disagree on all kinds of things, and we do our jobs, and we But when we're sitting next to things, Famous Hollywood celebrities, we all agree on fawning over them for a few hours. Like, like it's sort of it's the same thing as kind of the, the Al Smith dinner, right? The things that are it just shows a level of of sort of um, grace and self humor and humility. And now I don't know that the White House Correspondents Center has ever effectively um, offered that message, but the, the you know sort of the process of, of the unit, President of the United States standing up and humbling himself and allowing himself to sort of be roasted and it the, sort of that that good sport element. Um, I, I think the fact that it's gone is a little bit of a representation that, you know, we we actually aren't having those um, civ- 
evil relationships. Um, well, well said, I think there's Susan. a point. I'm I, and I will I will wrap this up by saying that I'll, I'll let's just stipulate that our conclusion here is that the White House Correspondents' Dinner is very nearly as gross as the president who's decided not to attend it. Uh, here's a here's here's a, here's another one, Joanna. Sean Spicer apparently wrote an angry letter to his college newspaper after they called him Sean Sphincter. How do you think this? <laughs> well, that was mean. Um, that was really, really mean. <laughs> what's how what's in the world does what he this have says. time to read his high school newspaper? And no, I think pers- he wrote this years ago. I think this is now recent. <laughs> yeah, this was this is this was a while back. Yes. Yeah. Um, what is what is with this dude? I mean. I don't know much about John Spicer before he became the Sean Spicer that I know and love, but I do feel that through this whole process he has become, I mean, Donald Trump I will never normalize, Sean Spicer I have normalized into being an infant. I think he's so cute when he's flailing around. I I don't know if that's an okay take for this podcast, but... You think he's adorable? I'm just like adorably inept, and I, I don't know. I'm having fun watching him. I hope he doesn't do anything uh, country-threatening. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I sort of, I, I find his press conferences um, equally sort of silly and, and ridiculous. Um, that said, I find things like picking up the phone to call the FBI director to try and direct him to have conversations about the about ongoing investigations. You don't think that's adorable? Conscripting, uh, reportedly, the director of the CIA, Mike Pompeo, who actually allegedly did do so, undermining the integrity of the only significant congressional investigation that's underway, the SSCI investigation, uh, the inquiry into Russia, by uh, forcing or, or uh, convincing Chairman Burr to compromise himself in these phone calls, that lack of ethics um, that is uh, originating in the White House and originating in the White House press office um, is is up to some seriously ugly uh, purposes here. And, and I think people would be sort of well advised to stay on that because speaking of major, major dem- democratic norms, uh, an independent Department of Justice, that's kind of a big one. So Voltaire uh, famously said that. He... Oh, we've gone back to the 18th century. I'm so glad we're really we're breaking some new ground here. Uh, famously said that he believed in God because his proof was that he had only ever made one prayer, and that prayer was, "Dear God, make my enemies ridiculous." And since his enemies were ridiculous, that was his proof of God. And I share Susan's. Alarm. I'm much more worried than it sounds like Joanna is about the behavior of the White House press secretary and what it reflects of the compromise of our norms and potentially the compromise of our laws on these issues. But fortunately, the kind of White House press secretary who uh, is such a toxic leader that they bring in the White House legal counsel unannounced at a meeting to survey everybody's telephones and has to threaten that if the if the news of this leaks, and by the way, the news of it was all over the newspapers the next morning, I I feel like um, he is he is almost as ineffectual as Joanna portrays him as being. It's unprecedented transparency <laughs> from the White House press office. There we go. I will say, just by me by me being amused by how his skin has suddenly turned orange and his general demeanor doesn't mean that I'm not worried. Fair Earlier point. in the show you said it it's 
it's not good for Democrats to be constantly lathered. I am constantly lathered. I need to just relax sometimes. <laughs> yeah, no, no. If we can't find some humor in this to go along with our outrage, uh, it's going to be unsustainable for a long period of time. And unfortunately, uh, I think we're going to have to deal with it for a long period of time. And equally unfortunately, I don't think we have a long period of time remaining in this episode of this podcast uh, because we've run out of our time. I want to thank... Uh, the usual suspects, Rosa and Corey and Susan, for joining us for this podcast. I want to thank our unusual suspect, Joanna, who I hope we will have back because it really is great to have a chance uh, to see her and uh, to hear what is the latest from the really, you know, the sort of capital of what's really happening in the United States, which is Brooklyn and uh, the sort of world of David, Jezebel, I hope that being on a podcast from. with your daughter is not the only opportunity you have to see her. I haven't seen her in seven years. <laughs> no, it's not, but it's fun, um, and I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that she could uh, join us. Uh, so, thanks to everybody. Thanks to everybody for listening. We'll see you again in the not too distant future. And uh, this has been the latest episode of the ER. Join us in a couple of days because we are on twice a week now. Thank you. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe to this and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.